Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Legends Library. Now, here's your host, Lisa Mountain and Kyle Rollins. Hi, everybody. I'm Lisa, and you're listening to Legends Library. We are a podcast dedicated to the Legends line of, st- of Star Wars books and the expanded universe. Uh, today's a bit of a different episode, because you'll have noticed so far, it's just me. That's right, my co-host has been, well, he's been very, very, very swamped and very busy with the the final draft of Supernatural Encounters. Uh, He's also getting the audio drama geared up, and he's making the music and the sounds and everything for that. So that's where Kyle's been at. Uh, So I thought I'd just throw together kind of a fun little episode. So what we're going to be talking about today is I've been working on um, the YouTube channel. If you haven't checked it out already, please do. And we've been releasing a bunch of shorts that I've been writing and trying to release a couple every week. Uh, And I thought, you know, why not just have like a fun episode where I just kind of play some of the clips and we talk about it. So the the first one actually we were going to talk about is the Galactic Museum. And this video was inspired when I was reading uh, X-Wing Wedges Gamble by Michael Stackpole. And for listeners, as you know, we are currently covering the X-Wing series. And I thought, you know, what a perfect opportunity to do a short because this was a really inspirational moment. So let's check out the first short that I have on YouTube. The Galactic Museum, located on Coruscant, is first featured in Star Wars Tales of a Jedi, The Freedom Nad Uprising, written by Tom Veach under Dark Horse Comics set in 399A BBY. It later reappeared in X-Wing Wedges Gamble by Michael Stackpole, released under Bantam in 1996. In Book 2 of the series, Rogue Squadron and 7ABY undergoes a reconnaissance mission to Coruscant. The rogues are there to map out power grids, locate shield generators, and identify weaknesses as the rebellion plots its next step forward in the continuing journey to overthrow the Empire now under Izan Izard's rule. With the suggestion of the newest member of Rogue Squadron, Lieutenant Pash Kraken, alongside with Commander Wedge Antilles, and former Corsac agent Ayala Wasiri taking an introspective cultural look to those adapting to life under the Empire and its propaganda efforts by attending to the Galactic Museum. So obviously that was my first one and, you know, <laughs> has a few little glitches. I accidentally called uh, Wedge Antilles captain at that point when he's commander. Uh, so I had corrected that. But what I really liked about the introduction of the Galactic Museum is, well, I personally have, my first job was actually working in a museum, so this really struck a chord with me. Uh, Before we kind of get into the actual discussion of the museum, I just want to make note of Tom Veach, uh, who had passed away this year, so we're actually going to start the show talking about Tom Veach and then finish the show talking about Tom Veach as well. What I love about Tom Veach is he was so early in his, his ideas and, you know, very forward with Lucasfilm, because... There was no comics at this point. He was basically kind of the brainchild of of the comics. 
And he early as 1988, he approached Lucasfilm with this with a story, and it was actually his kind of you know four thousand five thousand years before Luke, and it's the story about you know the the Caldromic Caldromic family and all that. Uh, but of course, you know at the time, like other even other Star or not Star Wars authors, other comic book authors were like. Why are you trying to pursue Star Wars? Star Wars is dead. You know, we got the the three movies. What else is there to do? But of course, Tom was, you know, he he had a vision and he he got he was able to do it when Dark Horse finally was granted the contract and they contacted him saying, "Hey, let's do this." So instead of his original idea that we we do see in Tales of the Jedi and with a little bit that we get here um from some of these images is they they would do the dark, you know, he made the Dark Empire and got that contract and that really started star wars the comics and you know and it led to the tales of the jedi and so many other things so and when he did the the tales of the jedi uh, at the time kevin j anderson was working on the the jedi academy trilogy and they kind of brainchild or sorry they came they came together and discussed um exar kun because exar kun was you know the sith lord that uh, kevin j anderson had come up with and then through that them together working together, that's how you get uh, XR Kuhn into the Je- the Tales of the Jedi series, which is fantastic if you haven't checked it out. But the the significance of of Tom and and being able to do all this, you know, in the Dark Horse or sorry, the Dark Empire comics, he also came up with with Anakin's name. So again, thanks to Tom, like we have a lot of a lot of stuff. When I mean Anakin, I mean Anakin Solo. Um, there's the whole, you know, Leia gives birth and then everyone's crowding on the baby. <laughs> and Solo's like, oh, that's Han Solo Jr. And Leia's immediately saying, no, he's Anakin after his grandfather, which I think is is very sweet. And I, I like that Tom came up with that concept. So with introducing the fact that there is a galactic museum, kind of like the National Museum of, of Coruscant, um, and of of the galaxy, and basically, it you know it has a collection of artifacts from like over century, and you have like whole floors of flora fauna. But of course, when the Empire gets in, and they totally just change things. They they change the Jedi exhibits. They remove relics. They put in their own propaganda. They they like rise up the Emperor as well. So let's let's watch the second one. Rogue Squadron's attending to the Galactic Museum is an opportunistic first analysis of the people of Coruscant and how they are viewing the glorification of the Empire. Filled with the exhibits such as the Sith Artifact Room, vast displays of flora, fauna, and minerals, a floor dedicated to the Emperor, and a Jedi exhibit that ennobles Darth Vader, all within the shadow of the Imperial Palace. The museum is also featured or mentioned in other events such as in Darth Plagueis, I Jedi, Darth Maul Shadowhunter, Republic Commando Triple Zero, Shadows of the Empire, Mara Jade by the Emperor's Hand 2, X-Wing Krytos Trap, and Solo Command, and Han Solo and the Lost Legacy. So kind of going on my experience of working in museums, I've actually worked at two different museums in my lifetime, my, my early teens going into university. Uh, the first one was the Victoria School Museum in Carlton Place, and that it's actually famous for part of the exhibit um arthur roy brown and if you guys don't know who roy brown is he is the pilot that shot down the red baron in world war one uh 
so I was kind of like a, not necessarily a curator, but I was the um, the textile expert. So I had an understanding of you know like the knowledge of like fashions and trends and how to take measurements and cataloging. I did a lot of cataloging there, like a lot, a lot of like uh, boxes and boxes of doilies, doilies. After a while, ugh, anyways, but. With the Galactic Museum here, you know, going back to the propaganda thing, and in Wedge's Gamble, I, there's this one scene that I just have to have to talk about because I absolutely love this, and we'll definitely mention it when we finally cover the show. But and I'll probably read the quote there again. So in the exhibits, and the in the final floor, you have the emperor, the emperor laying in state. So it's basically like this exhibit of how great he was and how he's handsome and, you know, gentle and kind and all these lies that um, people like Izan Izard and St. Pastage established after the emperor was killed at the Battle of Endor. So in the final exhibit with, with Palpatine, it's him lying in state. And you could see like in this dark room and this holographic image of Darth Vader, you know, that guy right there, uh, <laughs> so it's just this image of him talking and giving this false speech and these lies that they're filling to and uh, feeding sorry feeding to the people of of Coruscant as well as the rest of the empire. So the holographic images of Vader says this. Behold my master and weep he has been stolen from us by those who embrace hatred. The Emperor learned that the rebels had stolen plans to the Imperial Planetary Ore Extractor and intended to use the one they were fabricating at Endor on inhabited planets. So already they're saying that it's the rebels that took over the Death Star and were p intending to, like, you know, destroy planets and, you know, hold people, I guess, ransom and kill people and murder because that's what the rebels are doing according to the Emperor. He assembled his fleet, Palpatine, and heedless of personal danger, he had me take him to Endor. He infiltrated the half-completed extractor, offering these rebels his forgiveness and a hand in friendship. They rejected him and attacked his fleet. My master had no alternative but to destroy this Death Star himself, perishing in the process so his citizens could live on. I was slain with him, but my death did not distress me. For it came in service to my master. So again, the lies that Saint Pastage and Izan Lizard have put here into this museum is that Palpatine was actually the one who tried to like stop them and then self-sacrificed and blew himself up in the Death Star. So, you know, total like total disregard of what actually happened. And and it's just the lies that they're willing to spread. And what's also significant about this museum is, like, they're selling, like, hollow laser discs, like, you know, at this time, this is when, like, DVDs and all this stuff was kind of coming out. And they were concerned that, you know, this information was being spread to other civilians and could go, and this message could go out across the galaxy. So it's it was just, like, an interesting just talk about propaganda and, and something I, I thought we should cover. So let's move on to our next short. So the next one is a fun one. So this is how Salacious B. Crumb met Jabba the Hutt. So in, in the story This Crumb for Hire, 
So it's it's featured in A Decade of Dark Horse number two, and the penciler is Alan Nunes, letterer Clem Robbins, colorist Art Knight, and the cover artist is Alan Nunes and Perry McNamee. And the story was written by Ryder Wyndham. The court jester for Jabba the Hutt, Salacious B. Crumb, first met the crime lord off-screen in 2BBY in This Crumb for Hire, written by Ryder Windham, for the second issue in A Decade of Dark Horse. Having business to double-cross Han Solo on Quen Station, Han and Chewie call it a day and leave after delivering spice. Jabba's two major domo, Bib Fortuna and Bilda Corve, annoyingly load the spice aboard the Ubrekian yacht Star Jewel to return to Tatooine. However, a stray Kowakian monkey lizard native to Kowak stuck on the station spies his chance to flee on the Star Jewel. With a grumble in his belly and urge for fine dining, the creature sniffs out Jabba's throne gallery. Jabba now returns only to find his lunch bathed in. Salacious flees as Jabba attempts to chomp and steals the bowl. Bib and Bildo, alarmed by shouting, enter and as Bildo draws his weapon to shoot the stinking vermin, Salacious hucks the bowl, covering Bildo, Bib, and his gun. Jabba, impressed with the hysterics, cuddles up with Salacious and offers his new pet a job that if Jabba keeps laughing, you'll keep living. What a threat that is. As long as I keep laughing, you'll keep living. Poor, poor little, you know, Star Wars space parrot. <laughs> I love the fact that he sniffed out the bowl and then that's how Jabba found him, like, floating around in his soup and just being like, what? What is this? Uh, and then, you know, obviously the group getting fallen on uh, um, Bildo. So that was... I th- it was just like kind of a fun one. I thought, you know, why not? Let's just do this. Let's talk about Salacious B. Crumb. Who later, obviously, is killed by the rebels, Luke and Leia. Moving on to our next short. So in the comic Dark Times 3, uh, Path to Nowhere by Randy Stradley, and there's a really interesting kind of moment in the comics where Vader comes to Sidious and realizes that Sidious fully intends to continue using slavery, and that obviously is a trigger for Anakin for obvious reasons, since he was a slave growing up, and his mother who died a slave. Well, she was sort of freed, and then died. So let's play this. In the comic Dark Times 3, The Path to Nowhere arc by Randy Stradley, Wells Hartley, and Mick Harrison... Vader is summoned to Sidious regarding a mission to Mercana in 19 BBY. Sidious senses trouble within his apprentice. Vader having been told by Commander Vill that on New Palimto, slavery was implemented, Sidious recalls Anakin Skywalker was a slave and apologizes for failing to explain the situation earlier. Slavery, he states, that exists in the Outer Rim is wrong and it will end in time thanks to the Empire. However, the Empire's actions on New Plimto and elsewhere is different. Those now slaves, in this case mostly females and younglings, were separatists and will be dealt with by work and will make a positive contribution, a merciful necessity otherwise. Sidious leaves believing he is certain Vader will understand. Later, Vader's troops notice Vader is still displeased. It's one of those moments where, you know, you, you feel your heartbreak just a little bit more for Vader, like, and you understand why his his fall has happened. Um, I mean, like, the person that he trusted, obviously Sidious, turned out to not be who he exactly thought he was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's just heartbreaking. And I love this kind of, you know, that's why I made sure to do, like, the transition of, like, him thinking about his past and, you know, imagining, like, the chance cube. Well, you know, we don't know about the, or he doesn't know about the chance cube, but we know about the chance 
cube, so I just thought it would just kind of be an impactful kind of tie-in with the comic itself here. And I love that Vader's still pissed off later, and his troops silently in the background are like, ah, let's just kind of hang back here a little bit, because uh, Vader's not happy, so... So, going to the next one now. So, this is based on Lando becoming a guard for Jabba the Hutt. So, this is that kind of moment where, you know, we later see him in Return of the Jedi and how he becomes Tamtail Screech. So, it's another kind of fun comic. This is obviously um, in one of kind of like the younger stuff. So, it's in Star Wars Kids 12 magazine and the Gambler's Quest is a kind of is also an alternative version for this is one of the examples of how he becomes the guard and then the other example is in uh the bounty hunters uh scoundrels wages by march schultz and that's the dark horse version lano calrissian everyone's favorite baron under the guise of tamtil screech initiates his plan to win a position within jabba's palace and gambler's quest in star wars kids 12 by robert rath to rescue his old buddy in 4ABY, Lando risks his life to ingratiate himself as a guard by competition. His referee and judge is Boba Fett. With endless challenges like barely making the leap of doom over the Rancor pit, playing hollow chess with a palace champ, a Wookiee who always wins, steal a helmet from a sleeping Camarian, a start-to-finish test in the Junlun's waist, to steal the eggs from a napping crate dragon so Jabba can have breakfast. To finally be one of three who bows down to Jabba to watch the others be sacrificed. With a little bit of luck, Han's rescue will be easy. With help from friends, of course. I feel silly that I accidentally left out Chewie in that last kind of image uh, shuffle there. But he's loved, of course. I do think it's pretty funny that, like, Boba was also the judge and you know so it's very it's a good tie-in of the characters it's very intimidating for Lando he had to do a lot of work to become a guard there you know Jabba obviously is used to any kind of person coming in there trying to get a job for either good intentions or malicious intentions and Jabba doesn't trust anyone because he's a hut and that's just what they do so moving on to the next one this one's kind of another fun one uh it made me laugh reading this comic for the first time just because it's kind of silly uh, in the sense where it's C-3PO being mean and his insults are not mean, but to C-3PO they're mean. So let's check that out. On an alliance mission to Yagdul in 8ABY, the Imperials track down the Millennium Falcon in both the audio and comic book The Mixed-Up Droid by John Whitman and Ryder Windham, giving it a blast that shocks 3PO. When Han asks him to check the computer, he responds Han needs a bowl of orchids and a swift kick, and calls R2 handsome, stopping on Nar Shaddaa to repair 3PO, who's bored of all of them. He swears he won't speak in the cantina, but compares a patron's ears to a sailboat, then taunts the smugglers into chasing R2 and him in a stolen skiff, telling R2 to fly better up a wall. Blasting off world with a new set of language circuits, the actions of 3PO attracted the imps who calms them. Leia gets 3PO jabbering that they want to be tortured and enjoy a horrible death, confusing the imps enough to get away to meet the Gibbons, but only after getting repaired. First of all, the whole insult of like bowl of orchids, like what a what a very sweet insult. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's the childish innocence of C-3PO that we're just so accustomed to. 
And then, you know, it's mean that he calls R2 handsome. Because <laughs> when is he ever nice to R2? So the fact that he's nice to R2 is what's mean. Uh, <laughs> um, then, of course, he's mean to him later when, you know, R2's driving them. And he's like, you know, take a turn here. I could do, you know, you should be doing better driving. And then drive straight up the wall, saving the day, as R2 always does. Leia's idea of getting 3PO to talk to the imps to kind of confuse them again, I think that was kind of a, a funny but yet brilliant uh, thing for her to do. And Han's just like, what? Why would you trust 3PO of all people? And she's like, no, no, no. Like, something's wrong with him. It's going to confuse. And, like, that's always kind of the best defense is to confuse your enemies, right? Like, um, there's a Forrest Griffin quote that I can't say on here, but if you know the quote, only because it's not an appropriate quote, you'll know it. <laughs> and it's kind of along the lines of like, he was getting attacked, he said something so confusing that these eight guys in the alley went, uh, we're out of here, and walked away. So it's that kind of concept, which I think is really funny. So now that I've kind of moved away and I decided to do a full kind of arc series. So I, I liked the the extinction arc that we get. And uh, it's a two-part series featured in uh, the Tales 1 and 2. Let's just cue that up here. And it starts with Mara Jade's uh, a mission that she had kind of stumbled across and gave the information to Palpatine and Palpatine turns it around and gives it to Vader. So it's actually a story where you get Mara in a little bit, but then it becomes Vader. So I, I like that we have, you know, another moment of Mara Jade, especially since this is a moment where she's working for the Empire still versus when we, we see and we love her later on when she's, you know, getting involved with Luke and then all, you know, and the mother of Luke's child. So let's take a listen. In around 0-1 BBY, Palpatine calls on Vader to alert him of a surviving Jedi in the arc Extinction from the comics Tales 1 and 2. Many years pass since Order 66, Palpatine reveals another pawn at his disposal, Mara Jade, the Emperor's Hand. Mara Jade, capable and resourceful, encountered a man trying to escape custody on Kuat, who claimed a smuggler that whispered of the dark woman in the outer rim. Vader insists on taking the mission to an objecting Mara Jade, who according to him had meager Jedi training not capable of the job. Palpatine, having enough of his minions, wants the rebels' hope to be made extinct before they find the Jedi, assigns Vader to the task to a relenting Mara. He, after all, knows something about the destruction of a Jedi. You'll notice in that I have, you know, a real thunder cue. Uh, when I was recording it, there was a thunderstorm going on, so I thought I couldn't really remove the sound of thunder in the background, so I just, you know, it was very ominous at the same moment. <clears throat> so the Extinction Art was written by Ron Mars, and ink pencilers Claudio Castellini, the letter is Michael Taylor, colorist Guy Major, and I love how this comic was is drawn. It's so stunning. It's so beautiful. Uh, I think it's a really interesting story because you get this kind of Jedi who's, you know, the dark woman who's a fallen, not necessarily fallen, but she's a self-exiled Jedi who survived Order 66 and Vader is tasked to to find her. And she's super powerful, the dark woman. Um, so we will find out a little bit more about her. So this is him hunting down the Jedi exile. 
In the comic Extinction, Vader travels to hunt a former Jedi in his Lambda-class shuttle to the fifth planet on a world full of wondrous flora and fauna in the Cofrisian system. He is sensed immediately. Leaving the stormtroopers behind, Vader begins his blind search. The dark woman, a once Jedi, bids her friends farewell, and they heed her warning as Vader gets closer and closer. The woodlands swallow up Vader, who's naturally led to a glen to find a lone, beautiful flower, a dying species. Startled, Vader turns to find one of the last of its kind. The dark woman, former Jedi master and council member, Anya Kuro, now his prey. Once master to John Antilles, the respected mysterious Jedi also discovered Kiari Mundi as a youngling, and later Anar Shaddaa found an apprentice Aura Singh, who later believed Kuro sold her to pirates and turned assassin. This leading to her own exile and turn to the dark. So what's interesting about the Extinction arc is it continues this story of the Dark Woman, uh, who's this Jedi self-exile who who had taken Aura Singh as an apprentice and failed and put herself into that exile during the Clone Wars. Um, but she's like a, but she's a super powerful Jedi. Like she you know, she had discovered Kiari Mundi, she discovered Aura Singh, uh, she had the ability to to bend light around her so she could actually become invisible. She could control plants, and in the Extinction Arc, that's actually the first time that's ever seen that Force ability. Uh, she could actually pass through objects, so it that's really interesting, and she could teleport through the Force. So, like, again, she's this incredibly powerful Jedi, and it's no wonder that she's such a threat to Palpatine and to Vader because she has these abilities that they don't they don't necessarily have or or are able to control. And you know, like having this Jedi who survived Order sixty six just kicking around for all these years on Confusion Five, you know, it's she's content to be hidden and secreted away, but she was also kind of in a way waiting for Vader. So that's something we will see when she starts talking to him. What also is of note about her as a character is like she's actually really brutal as an instructor. Um, so that's why like John Antilles, he actually leaves the Jedi Order because of her training and teachings. Uh, she was willing to teach Asherah Head a little bit, and you see them kind of fight in a, in one of this in one of the books. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, one of the comics, and. Like and like, there's another quote about her, like by even Piel, where she's you know she's kind of relying on like the darkness and um, her teaching are brutal and disturbing. <laughs> and Mace Windu's like, I thought she was dead, you know. <laughs> so you know, typical Mace, just to be kind of blunt to the point. Um, and then later she would hunt with Kiari Mundi, Asherah Head, and Adi Galia, and they would go to. Um, Sorry, I forget, I forget what world it is. You know, if I had my co-host Kyle, he could remind me. But they go to this world and they hunt down Aura Singh. But of course, during a force storm and some like asteroids basically crashing down, she's able to get away. And Aura is significant in this moment because she had killed Asherad's father on Tatooine. So like she's a huge threat because she's very capable of killing Jedi. Um, but this was in 30 BBY. So obviously a little bit different timeline of this story. So continuing on with the short, 
Vader and Comic Extinction at last found the dark woman Anya Kuro in the Kofrisian system pauses to allow the once Jedi to monologue in comparing the near-extinct flower to that of the ending of the Jedi. Extinction is the natural order, Vader affirms. Weak are replaced by the strong. She continues the lesson that species can bide their time and bloom when least expecting. A seed long buried can still sprout fruit. Vader reminds her there's no turning from the dark side. Of all people, she knows that. Lighting his lightsaber, the two clash when she calls it a coward's path. Kuro counters a worthy opponent, even commits a move from his past. He claims an excellent disciple she'd be to the dark side. Though more seductive, not more powerful, the dark side is. But the positive can be tenacious. So you see there in the end and in the beginning of the next video that I'm about to queue up, that's when she starts to kind of get the plants of the world to uh, to take down Vader. It's, it's kind of like that only choice she really has in that moment. Well, not really choice. Like she's, because she's so powerful, she knows other ways to defeat him. And what she does is, well, what you're going to see next. In the fierce battle against Vader, the once Jedi Kuro using the Force moves the tree's roots to clasp Vader tight, as Kuro laments Palpatine's loss of a pawn. Vader still gets free. Appearing like the galaxy's version of death, he pounces as there is no place a Jedi could run that he won't follow. The vicious fight flows into a waterfall. Kuro disarms Vader, but in turn he overpowers her and then flings her aside. Trapped by a tree, Vader begins to cut with his blade, ending the hunt with just a grasp, and pulls the tree down to crush the disgraced master. With a final taunt, she reminds him there is an escape from the dark side, as Vader brings down his lightsaber. Inspecting her empty robes, a blue light bays him as Anya Kuro, now turned by Corpio. Remember, Skywalker, she illuminates, even a faint light shines brightest surrounded by darkness. Cutting through her one last time, Vader turns to the flower and crushes the last of its kind, ending the extinction arc, completing Mara Jade's mission. I love that line. I think it's it's such a beautiful way to describe um what Vader needs to hear at that moment. So originally, though, the, the comic was a bit different. So it the context where it was, um, you know, she's giving that quote of, like, the darkness, uh, it said, Anakin, I see with, within you the power to release yourself from the dark side. And he goes, no, I seek no release. Anakin no longer exists. Where they change it to, do you now see? Your might is nothing compared to mine. Remember, Skywalker, even a faint light shines through brightest when it's surrounded by darkness. I think that's such a more beautiful, poetic way to describe it. And, you know, I, the whole I seek no release. Uh, yeah, I'm glad they got rid of it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a change that it's not really clear why they change it. There's some ideas that could kind of like it follows the, the strong resemblances of in, of episode three novel but of course i don't know no one knows i don't know <clears throat> but i love that arc it was really great um you'll see that i also included the the plant kind of image back in the galactic museum display uh, one thing i forgot to mention about the galactic Mu museum display is they actually blame the the mass deaths of ewoks on the rebels as well which so there's you know, all these Ewoks on display looking cuter and which is really funny um, because we all know that they're rather vicious in comparison. <laughs> <laughs>
<clears throat> so moving on to the next short. This series, uh, it's a two-parter, this short. And I loved, 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 loved this arc. So this is all about Leia and Tarkin. So it's kind of like her getting revenge on Tarkin twice. So let's check it out. In Star Wars Tales 11 by Jason Short, The Princess Diaries is a comic based on Leia's adolescent journal entries on Alderaan set between 9 to 1 BBY. Frustrated with the primping and posturing she's forced to endure by her adopted family, she mourns the loss of her real mother, betting that her mother would not make her behave like her rancor of nanny Madame Vesta, let her eat how she wants, even dance in public how she wants. Bale's very proud. Young Leia cut off her hair, only to be given wigs. Dinner parties could be a drag, unless she helped. Fun boys could only be met with Winter acting as her double. Still, Leia felt like an outsider, like a piece of her was missing. Meeting Governor Tarkin, he was unimpressed by her charms, and Leia felt like death stared at her. After stating Leia needs weaning, Tarkin leaves. So Leia waters her plants, and a perfectly placed Tarkin being picked up by his slave Akbar and driver Natasi Dalla. Leia drops the water balloon to help change the galaxy. How funny is that? Like, she happens to, one, conveniently have water balloons in her bedroom, and two, live near the, you know, whose bedroom is situated by the exit, so, and it's perfectly placed. Let's just be real. Uh, the fact that Natasi Dalo is there as well, being the, the, the driver for Tarkin, I just, like, I love that little, just kind of like add in, um, because we know later on that she revered Tarkin, of course, and things, and things like that. Um, <laughs> Leia, of course, like, she's got, that typical kind of Leia attitude from all throughout her childhood. And I love seeing it in, in this moment. So the, the princess diaries is actually named after the princess diary movie that was kind of came out at the same time with Anne Hathaway. If you guys remember that one. So writer, Jason Hall, penciler, Chris Bruno, letterer, Steve Dutrow, colorist, Dave Nestel, and obviously it's dark horse comics. So let's watch part two of princess diarist. When Tarkin gets water bloomed by Leia again. Ah, <laughs> uh, she's so great. I love Leia. I mean, who doesn't? Our galactic princess. At age 13, Princess Leia annoyed to attend another lavish court party while the galaxy starves, overhears others ridiculing a servant girl that asks to try on a dress. Using diplomacy, Leia makes the expensive dress a hand-me-down. Leia volunteers in food kitchens and studies hired in university. She begins training with weapons master Gilles Duane under her father's foresight. By 17, Leia discovers Senator Bale is secretly part of an alliance to restore the Republic. Leia hates the Empire for reasons like how they treat aliens and women. She swears to make them all proud. When elected the youngest senator, Leia tells Bale her hopeful intentions to help the rebellion. Once again meets with now Grand Moff Tarkin, to whom she apologizes for the water balloon incident, and he hopes Leia won't be a thorn in the Empire's side. Tarkin states everyone gets what they deserve. He takes his leave, as does Leia, to water her plants and anyone below. Tarkin, soaked again, swears to return to Alderaan very, very soon. It makes you kind of think that Tarkin destroys Alderaan because Leia drops a water balloon on him twice. 
like obviously that's not quite the reason but you know i can see why he has no issue pulling the trigger and destroys the whole world because he, he got dropped a water balloon on twice like <laughs> Uh, I like also that there ooh, that there is a nod to to winter in this, and you know we can't forget that winter is one of the ones who helped raise Anakin, you know, and that was something that Tom Beach had also written about. But yeah, what a great comic! I loved that she, you know, threw a drink on the, that rich girl's dress just because, like, meh, like that's what you get for making fun of someone who doesn't have your you know, your life opportunities because your your family's wealth and things like that. Like, you know, it's a very typical kind of like preteen uh, thing to do, but it's also just like a hilarious Leia thing to do at the same time. So continuing on with our shorts and the review of all the ones that I've made so far. So in this one, Wedge and Tilly's, he watches his parents die. I found this a really heartbreaking moment in the, the X-Wing series of comics uh, the Rogue Squadron comics, where, you know, like, Wedge has so much tragedy in his life. Like, he, he his parents die, uh, he had a girlfriend who got killed, uh, and then, you know, it inspired him to become the rebel that he, that he becomes. And, and he's such an important character that, you know, like, I thought, we, we need, I wanted to highlight this, first of all. Um, another thing with the, the X-Wing Rogue Squadron comics, just a, just a little kind of, expand his universe of family where he has actually a famous sister we find out and that's Sile Antilles but she's known as Wynessa Starflare and Wynessa she actually meets Sunterfell on Coruscant and she's like this beautiful you know blonde uh, you know very obviously Star Wars comic book drawn kind of woman and you know she falls instantly for Sunterfell and you know he's this kind of you know, noble, you know, fighting for the Empire pilots, you know, very handsome. And and they, I actually have a, a little bit of a feature of the two of them together at the Galactic Museum because that's an outing that they do together. Um, of course, my, you know, Wynessa or Sayal, she actually, of course, is the mother of Jagged, Jagged Fell, who we all love, and then who in the future becomes the Emperor, thanks to Luke Skywalker, and eventually marries Jaina Solo. So there is some happiness for that family. But let's watch the beginning. In the comic X-Wing Rose Squadron Phantom Affair, Wedge Antilles in 4ABY comes face to limpet face with his parents' killer, Loka Haas, during New Republic negotiations on Mrist. Loka and the Bone Star Pirate 4 in 4BBY attack the fueling station family business of Jagged and Xena Antilles at Gus Tretta. Ignited fuel erupted as Booster Terror on the Pulsar Skate takes away Wedge from a certain death. His parents heroically remain aboard, fighting the blaze and self-sacrifice, leaving Wedge to watch. Flames rip through as they give a final goodbye to their son, saving hundreds of lives. Wedge silently standing is told by Booster that the pirates deliberately blew up the station. Wedge knows of an old Z-95 aboard, and Booster hands him a flight helmet. The pirate ship not far away was malfunctioning from parasitic space critters. Wedge states no police are needed and doesn't miss a shot. Hask escaped with the only vac suit aboard and hears Wedge's name on the comm, is captured by a parasite. I'm happy that you know, his killer, the, his parents' killer gets some sort of justice by having this thing live on him. Um, 
I haven't done the next part of the series, but if if you guys don't know, what happens is he kind of has to, you know, broker this deal with this guy. The the Rose Squadron is basically thrown into this position of where they're unable to successfully help, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, Wedge gets chucked into, like, a prison cell. The guy makes fun of him. In the end, Wedge does eventually kill uh, this guy, but I just haven't shown it in the short. The tragedy of this moment is the fact that, you know, his parents self-sacrifice again, and he witnesses it, and they're talking to him throughout. Like, like what a horrific, horrific experience for a child. And then I love that Booster Tarek, of course, is like, well, there's a, you know, might be a ship over there. And lets him go to to hunt down this guy. And of course, for years, he thought he had succeeded until he comes face to face again with him. Ah, poor Wedge. So jumping back in time. So going now to the dawn of the Jedi. And of course, you know, a lot of, again, we have to thank Tom Beach for the the inclusion of like, or the creation of older timelines and things like that. But I thought, let's talk about the first appearance of the lightsaber, because it's not actually a Jedi technology, and that's something that, you know, I think we tend to forget, is that they usurped the technology from somewhere else, and they got it from the Rakatan. So, this is on Tython, 10,000 years after the Thoyor arrival. The comic arc Dawn of the Jedi Force Storm saw the first use of the early lightsaber created by the Rakatan Infinite Empire, a highly intelligent species of dark side users dominating worlds like Tatooine. Tasked to find Force-sensitive, Force-hound Zesh travels to the deep core in 25,793 BBY. With balance disrupted, a Force Storm occurs on Tython as three Jedi journeyers are each sent a vision of the man in armor. As the ship crashes, Shaykhoda on her rancor butch, Sekno's wrath of full-blood Sith, and Tasha Rio draw nearer to the first new ship in an age. A near miss, the three locate the escape pod and sense darkness. Out walks death. They mean no harm. Jess calls them liars with drawn blades. He quickly slices them one by one. Tasha relies on her hands but is stopped. Jess, too powerful to subdue, is challenged enough as Seknos grabs the blade but fails to turn it on. Throws it to Shay who succeeds. Jess, outnumbered, flees on Tython with the three to follow. So I love the introduction of the Force Hound Jesh. Um, he's got like that fun, kind of crazy personality of someone who's obviously been in complete isolation uh, his whole life and being poisoned by evil. Uh, what you do see in, in the series, of course, is that, you know, in the end, he does kind of redeem himself because that is a theme of Star Wars. So this... The Dawn of the Jedi for the Force Storm is a Dark Horse comic written by John Ostander, uh, penciler Jan Dersema, who is a fantastic artist, uh, inker Dan Parsons, letterer Michael Heisler, colorist West Ziobia, and the cover artist, of course, is Jan Dersema. And the, re- the editor is Randy Stradley. Uh, so continuing on with the second episode, the, the trio are still hunting down the Force Hound Jesh. 
Pursuing the Rakatan Force Hound Jesh, the three Jedi journeyers enter the Abyss and are met with dark side visions, but are able to conquer them. Jesh, also ensnared, sees those he's killed, while real terrors of Tython attack and he is saved by Sekno's wrath. The creature fights and Jesh supposes they only help to kill him after. Shaykota, unable to light the Force Saber, returns it to Jesh, who leaves despite Shay's anger at his expected betrayal. Secretly, he watches. The creature take out Tashirio. He is confused as each Jedi protects the fallen, until Shay shows no fear and he feels something. He turns to help. He is the nexus of the Force Storm that draws in Masters. Now killing the creature, his anger enhances the storm. To quench its power, the Masters focus but Shay's master is killed. Shay lights the saber with anger and attacks. Jesh permits her to eat his heart after his death. With her standing over this odd stranger, she yields. Finally, he turns to the light. So again, there's kind of that character of like, you've, you've defeated me. You can now eat my heart. You've, you get, you get the honor. <laughs> and she's like, stranger, this is not our way. <laughs> I mean, it's not really anyone's way. Um, what's great about this series is you know, we get a lot of the the early kind of Jedi, uh, the Jedi. And what I like about it is, well, I have a theory. So uh, Tython, which first appeared in the Darth Bane trilogy um, by Drew Caparison. Sorry. So Tython, the name itself actually first appeared in Star Wars New Hope Draft number two. So in the Adventures of Starkiller, as taken from the Journal of Wills. Saga 1, The Star Wars. So it's in the 1974 draft. And later it was then used by Drew Caparison in the Darth Bane trilogy as, you know, that's where he has Bane has to travel into the deep core to track down the Sith holocron for Abelia. Darzu, a former Sith who was killed on Tython. And she was the one who had created the the nano uh, the, that nanovirus that basically had techno beasts and those you know creatures that were still kind of alive, I would say, um, that Bane has to ultimately fight and destroy in order to get the Sith Holocron. So I have this theory that I'm not sure if anyone has put this together before, but if for listeners that know, I'm a huge fan of Greek mythology. And there's a story that I'm just going to quickly share, and it'll kind of make sense in a moment. So the Greek goddess Eos, so the goddess of dawn, she mistakenly once upon a time had a secret affair with Ares, the god of war. And as everyone knows, Aphrodite and Ares were a huge item. So if you mess with a man that Aphrodite is fond of, you're going to get cursed. So Eos, she gets cursed and basically has... You know, bad luck with all the men that she meets and she loves. So she meets this mortal known as Tythonus. And <laughs> Tythonus, you know, he's very handsome and and things like that. And they fall madly in love as soon as they meet. They actually basically take each other's hands the second they see each other and start walking together. She later goes to Zeus and asks Zeus for immortality for her lover. Because she wants, you know, she's finally happy. She wants him to be her husband and while they live in the palace of the sun and of course zeus being the typical zeus which was in one of his moods because of aphrodite's curse he says sure i'll give tythonus immortality but you'll be back to thank me soon and you know a couple of decades later she's eos is back at zeus's door because she's discovered that a tythonus has a, a gray hair and yes, he had immortality, but he she never had asked for keeping his youth. 
So Tythonus actually ages. And she doesn't have the heart to tell him at first. And he ages and ages and ages. And ages so much that he's basically like the former remnant of himself. You know, like he's just the shell of, of old man. And Eos doesn't have the heart to to like kill him. And she can't undo something that another god has done. So like she can't kill him. Um, in the end, she does decide to change him to a grasshopper. And he's able to like hop off in the night and like know aphrodite has her last laugh basically because eos is single again so the reason i bring all this up is the geologist albert oppel actually named uh a time a a stratigraphic time as the tythonian period so it's known as the dawn of the cretaceous period so that's kind of his nod to you know eos and to her lover that he's at the dawn of this kind of time so, going with that in my crazy theory that Tython being emulated from this, from Tythonus, from being the dawn of the Jedi, and in the deep core. So, that's my crazy theory. You guys can feel free to write me about it, talk about it a bit more if you're more interested. Um, and let's move on. So, the next series I have on here is the What If Infinities. I've got about seven episodes on there. Um, I'm not going to cover that. So the Infinity's New Hope arc is something that Kyle and I are actually going to talk about in another episode. So if you want to check this out, check this out. But uh, for the time being, I'm going to skip over those. And I'm going to go right on to when Kyle Katarn and his partner fight the Yuuzhan Vong. In Star Wars Tales 21, Kyle Katarn and his wife Jan, actually not wife, I stand corrected, rescue villagers from warrior Yuzong Vong invaders and the Peace Brigade in around 28 ABY. Done with a successful duplicity as the stormtroopers were with them all along. They round up the Vong into a poorly secured old building. Later, Jan comments on his gallant cape removal and the Jedi flair he always has. Kyle brings up Luke's son's Ben and she notes it's the second time children are mentioned and says no to marriage. Kyle discusses how they loved each other most of their lives. She noting if they to be the next Mara Luke. Marriage is not done out of fear of future, but of love. Then the calm goes off. The Vong have escaped and are rampaging the village. Jan already in action. Kyle rushing out saves Lieutenant Palin, finding a Vong with Jan in hand who tosses her in a cell. Kyle attacks and throws the lightsaber into the cage and Jan burns the locks. The two brawl, but Kyle injects a bomb in the Vong, kicking the explosion away. The dashing Jedi, his words, saved the day like she had many times before. And it was still no to marriage. So this incident occurred on Ord Sedra, and it actually is just before the the New Jedi Order Force Heretic Remnant, uh, Force Heretic Two Remnants by Sean Williams and uh, Shane Dix. So that's number fifteen of the New Jedi Order books. Uh, I love this this kind of short story because it's you get that whole people are trying to like with the Jedi, you know, they're they're still trying to have relationships and. I like what Jan says. It's like, you know, we don't want to be the next Mara and Luke. You know, we don't want to rush into things. Not that Mara and Luke did, but she doesn't want to be like the next power couple, I guess, in, in her idea. Um, in the sense where like, maybe because we're at war, this is why we should get married. But I want to do this out of love. And then they kill some Vong and, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. I I like the story. I'm a huge fan of the NGO. Um, so I was happy to to do this short and, and get this a little bit more attention to. So this was written by Nathan P. Butler, penciler James Reyes, letterer Michael Heisler, colorist Michael Atia, 
and the cover artist was Lee Bermejo. Bermejo, sorry. And our final short today, that's right, we almost done. Thank you for everyone for sticking around with me as I talk to myself. And this one is actually a short that's based on the <clears throat> the tales from Moss Isley Cantina by Martha and Tom Beach, the short story. I really like this one uh, because it's all about Greedo. So let's check that out. Greedo's backstory was written by married couple Martha and Tom Beach in the Bantam book Tales from the Moss Isley Cantina and who have both passed away this year. It was adapted as a web strip by Pablo Hidalgo in 4BBY one day playing with his younger brother Pequiduck, Greedo uncovers three ships hidden in a cave nearby their village, filled with a classic green suit. Greedo intends the find to be his. His mother Neela realizes he has seen the ships as he unconsciously carved food into their shape. Neela explains that they came from Rhodia two years after he was born from fleeing an evil clan leader, Navik the Red, who waged war on the weaker Tetsa's clan. Greedo Sr. had been a bounty hunter, and young Greedo is intrigued. The elder was murdered with an axe in his back. The survivors fled in three ships. That night, Greedo spots Navik the Red coming to finish the job, his calls alerting his mother. She begs him to run as the explosions rip around them. Greedo's uncle Nock organizes them, and the survivors yet again flee, with so few of them left. They go to the moon Narshada, starting on his bounty hunter path. So I really wanted to highlight this this short story um, because both Martha and Tom passed away this year. So Tom passed away on Valentine's Day and Martha passed away on September 11th. Um, they were both, I'm not sure about Martha, but I know Tom was one of those authors that Disney had not been paying for a while. So there had been a campaign um, for for money for Martha, but that, that their, their early daughter was set up. So if you guys want to still donate to that, like, I'm not sure who would go to, but maybe the money would go to their, to their daughter. Uh, what's fun about this story is kind of like, like father, like son, Greedo's dad was a bounty hunter and then Greedo becomes a bounty hunter himself as well. And one more thing to note about this is I like that this was done by Pablo as a web strip. It used to be available on StarWars.com and of course everything had been removed. But you can find this web strip still available. Thank you to Joe Bongiorno. So thank you so much, Joe, for putting it on StarWarsTimeline.net. So guys, if you want to check that out and check out Joe's amazing, amazing, sorry, archive of everything that Disney has removed, uh, go to his website and check that out. So thanks everyone for for joining me on this fun episode i know it's a little different uh you're stuck listening to just me but you know why not it's kind of a fun thing enjoy monologuing like most uh villains do i guess <laughs> but yeah feel free to to write me anytime so you can send me an email so legendslibrarypodcast at gmail.com you can also find us on on Twitter, Facebook at Legends Library Podcast, or check out the website, which is um, having some technical problems, and hopefully, I'm going to resolve that pretty soon. And of course, you can also get a hold of Kyle. Uh, we're going to be back in the next next episode, but you can get a hold of him as Darren Katarin on Twitter, and my personal accounts at Lisa Mountain. So, thanks again for everyone for joining in. This is Legends Library, and may the Force be with you. Thank you. 
That concludes this edition of Legends Library Podcast. To join the discussion, email us at legendslibrarypodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter or Discord at Legends Library. This podcast is not endorsed by the Walt Disney Company or Lucasfilm Limited. It is intended for informational or entertainment purposes only. Official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. Star Wars, all names, sounds, and any other related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights to Disney and respective copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Legends Library podcast, otherwise indicated. Legends Library, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.